This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Rick Phillips. Rick is a teaching elder who currently serves as the senior minister of Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. In this episode, Rick takes on the subject of Christ and culture. What are the obligations and obstacles Christians should consider when it comes to their relationship with the modern world? This was originally recorded as a seminar Rick delivered in June 2019 at the PCA General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Let's listen to Rick Phillips as he helps us consider the relationship between Christ and culture. Good morning. Nice to have you all here. I'm honored that you would come. And um, I'm Rick Phillips. I'm the senior minister of Second Presbyterian Church in wonderful Greenville, South Carolina. Why you don't live there is beyond me, but you have your callings. I I have mine. Uh, And I'm delighted at that. I'm not sure that my, I'm actually, my title is Biblical Models of Cultural Engagement. You know, as I develop the seminar, I'm not actually going to work through different biblical models, but it will be biblical. I give you that. And uh, let me say, too, there's no way in an hour seminar that I'm going to cover in the depth. But but I think that I chose this seminar because we need to think biblically and carefully about this subject. In my view, one of the massive issues for not just the PCA, but for Christians, uh, particularly in the West today, is to think biblically in a well-rounded way on this subject. So uh, let's just say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that Christ is king and uh, he reigns over all, over all things to the church you gave him. And so we want to exalt him even in this seminar. We uh, thank you for this general assembly. We pray that Christ would reign. We know he reigns when his people follow his word. Uh, thank you that that word is such a word of grace for the nations. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just a short bibliography. Uh, you really can't discuss the subject these days without looking at Reinhold Niebuhr's, uh, what, 1955 book, I think, Christ and Culture, which begins the conversation. Uh, D.A. Carson, about 10 years ago, put out a book, the second one, Christ and Culture Revisited. This seminar is almost a book report on that book, not completely. And uh, I'm sure if Don was here, I'm, I'm heavily under the influence of Don Carson on this issue and have been for many years. But I'm sure if he was here, he would not like parts of it because, you know, I'm a Presbyterian and everything. Um, but I, I, I would highly commend that book. Some other good books that have been out recently, James K.A. Smith has a three-volume series, the last of which is Awaiting the King. Uh, James Davidson Hunter's To Change the World really kind of needs to be read. I would recommend, uh, whenever you're going to talk about Christ and culture, the, the issue of the mission of the church is going to come up, and I would recommend Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Mission of the Church? Um, what is culture? When we say, what, what do we mean by culture, Christ and culture? Well, I think what we tend to mean is it's, that, it's, the, it's, the, it's the community out there. So you have the people of God gathered in a church community, and then you have the non-Christian people, the majority culture, actually it's Christians and non-Christians, and it's, it's that society, uh, you know, in my case in Greenville, South Carolina, yours in whatever city you're in, and, and then the broader culture. You get a number of, one of the, if you look at the different definitions, and we could do a, a five-hour seminar on nailing down the definition of culture. I really just want to introduce it. But uh, Dave, James Hayfield Hatter says it's ma- culture is manifested in the way values guide actual decisions. It's, it's the assumptions that people have. It's the conventional wisdom about how to live, how we spend our time, how we work, who we marry, how do we date, how do we play, whom or what do we worship. It's the, it's the prevailing worldview uh, around us and the, and the community of people it represents. Uh, D.A. Carson preliminarily calls it the set of values broadly shared by a subset of the human population, shared understandings made 
made uh, manifest in act and artifact. I think the word artifact's gonna come up a lot in thoughtful thinkers of it. A lot of it's subconscious. It's, it's, uh, there are artifacts that embed it and that, that even subconsciously shape it. But that's just kind of the way we're gonna think about culture. It's that surround, it's the community in which we live and the way they think, the, the assumptions they have, the presuppositions. Now, you start with Niebuhr's Christ and culture. Here's what I, I, you almost just can't not discuss this because this sets the table. So I said, I'm going to do biblical models of, of Christ and culture, and then I start with a liberalish book from 50 years, 70 years ago. But uh, Niebuhr gave us five approaches. The first is Christ against culture. And I know many people will go, that's me. It probably is not you, you're, unless you're a Benedictine or an Amish, um, resolutely rejects cultural claims of loyalty. So the, the Christ not equal culture. Just that we, we have no relationship to the culture, no loyalties, no claims on our, on our obedience will we accept uh, because of our, we are in the kingdom of Christ, we're not part of the culture. Uh, then you have the Christ of culture. I certainly hope there's no one here with that view. Uh, look, you conform the faith to the culture. Uh, Christ fulfills the best hopes and aspirations of a society. Immanuel Kant would take that. That's certainly 20th century liberalism. So the culture is going to give us the definitions of what our faith is because we're trying to Christianize the society. And, and you know, this is the vibe that says, as the society has changed, Christianity must change with it. And so it's, it's the, I would say, 19th century German liberalism, 20th century American liberalism. So it's our job to conform Christ to the culture. So those are the kind of the two radical views. Uh, Christ, church does not equal culture. Church does equal culture. Now, the three middle ones, the three last ones, I, I think Niebuhr calls them the grand tradition of the church. He's right. Uh, and there are different ways of, of some dialectic between Christ and culture. Christ above culture is that of synthesis. Uh, that's the one that says Christ reigns in both church and culture. And so Justin Martyr, well, I love Justin Martyr, but he'll say, you know, Plato's basically Christian. You know, it's a different version of it. So they're, they're trying to understand the relationship by assuming that both are different versions of Christianity. Uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas would say, well, the, 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 the church relates to culture by superintending the institutions of culture. And so this was his medieval synthesis. Uh, we know that and Thomas Aquinas, if, if you think that Thomas Aquinas is stupid, you're mistaken. He's a profound thinker. But he says, look, it's Christendom. And I know that there's a radical divide between the church and the world, but it's our job to superintend the, the, the political process, to superintend the marketplace, and the church takes control of the institutions. Church is above culture, but it's in a synthetic way. Uh, Christ and culture in paradox. This is, this is Martin Luther. Um, and this says, look, uh, there's, there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Christ. There's the kingdom of the world. They're both doing their own thing. And we live in both of them. And so uh, 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 the church, the Christians, we have dual responsibilities. I am a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. I have activities. We identify obligations to him. I'm a citizen of the United States. I also have. And the two are just kind of different. Now, this is basically the two kingdom theology uh, very prominent today, and uh, it's, it's Luther's outworking of it. Christ and culture in paradox, dualism. Then you have Christ, the transformer of culture, that it's a conversionist model. This is not saying we're going to convert people out of the culture. That's the more dualistic one. That's, that's, that's the paradox. No, no, we're going to convert the culture. The culture is going to be converted to Christ. Now, this is the John Calvin approach. You go, oh, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean... Uh, let's, just, let's just say they had a different view of church and state in Geneva. 
I just read Bruce Gordon's uh, biography of Calvin. You ought to read that. What a great book. It was so informative. But, you know, Calvin, you know, Geneva is going to be conformed. He is taking over. He's not just superintending the institutions. He's superintending Geneva. Uh, And uh, the culture is going to become basically a manifestation. Now, one of the beauties of it was daily preaching. Think how many books you can write if you're preaching every day. Well, Calvin's your answer, that's for sure. Uh, Actually, John Wesley was very much the same way, too. Uh, So these are your five options. Christ against culture, Christ of culture, Christ above culture, synthesis, Christ in culture and paradox, dualism, Christ a transformer of a culture, conversionist. Now, that's what I really want to get with it. Well, Well, let's just look at these briefly before I do that. There's biblical support for these options. Well, all but one. Uh, Christ against culture. You think about the Apostle John. I'm preaching through 1 John. Uh, John does not have a positive view of the culture. Do not love the world or anything in the world. For anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So on and so forth. Now he's talking about the value systems, the, the worship. He's not saying you can't cheer for your college team. Although if you're a Clemson fan, try to tone it down, y'all. A little humility would do you good. Uh, I know you got the greatest recruiting class of all time going in right now. It's going to corrupt you. The, uh, you're going to become Ohio State, you watch. But anyway, no, you, uh, 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 John's not saying that, but he's a very negative view. And of course, the book of Revelation set in where the culture is Domitian and then Trajan. And the, the demand of the culture is that you worship the manifestation of the beast, we have conquered them by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love their lives not even unto, not unto death. So martyrdom is kind of your, your basic model of, uh, that's a biblical model. That's John Calvin's missionaries in France, you know. And so that's a biblical model. Uh, you think of the seven letters of the churches. Uh, Jesus is not urging a synthetic relationship in Pergamon with your trade guild. Christ against culture has biblical support. Uh, Christ of culture has no biblical support. There's just no biblical support for the, well, you know, the, the, the culture tells us what Christ will be. There's no biblical support for that. Christ above culture, uh, this is a synthesis. You know, almost, the people who will espouse this will almost inevitably and immediately go to Paul in the Areopagus and point out, you know, Paul quotes... Greek, right, he doesn't quote the Bible. Actually, he, he preaches the same doctrine there that he does everywhere else. But sure, his, his approach to them is, is thoughtful. But, you know, hey, as one of your own poets said, that's, see, Paul's able to be used so we can preach those movies. Now, I don't say that to mock it. I'm saying that that's actual biblical support for this idea. There is something to this. There is genuine biblical support for gods at work, common graces at work in the culture. There is, there is biblical support for this synthetic approach. Uh, Christ and culture and dualism. But I got a lot of biblical support. Romans 13. Uh, yeah, Caesar, uh, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Because there's no, there no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Uh, Nero, emperor at the time. Uh, who's a deacon, if we're going to use deacon that way, I was not the wrong seminar. The, uh, but, uh, uh, so it's, it's a word, but, um, uh, and, and of course, Paul says, look, the civil authority issues, good conduct and culture is the mission that God gave to Caesar, not to the church. And so you got a dualism. You've got, uh, at Matthew 12, 22, 21. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. The two kingdoms theology has a lot of biblical support uh, in this. Christ, the transformer of culture, almost immediately will get Jeremiah 29, 7. I'm not sure it's exactly saying that, but seek the welfare of the city where you've been sent into exile. Pray to the Lord on his behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. And so the church then, under this view, this kind of biblical background, is going to be oriented on the blessing of the culture. Uh, it's a conversion. It's not just of people out of the culture, but of the culture itself. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Our Puritan forefathers, my, my wife is a descendant of the 1630 Puritan migration. That's kind of hard to beat. 
Um, she's actually a Mayflower descendant, but that's peanuts compared to Bradfordship. Her ancestors, and that was, believe me, they held this view. <laughs> you know, they're leaving England under persecution, and they're coming to America. They're going to have that post-millennial perfection, and it's, they're going to have a, of course, they're going to, it's going to be a conversion of society because they're going to build it. That's, that's that view. Now, my point is, you got these Niebuhr models, they all have biblical support. Well, four out of five have biblical support. So, so here's the question, is that what we have? Do we find ourselves in a situation where we've got a buffet-style approach? And Scott, you're going to do it your way, and Palmer, you're going to do it your way, and David, you're going to do it your way, and it's, well, I can't, it's not my cup of tea, but you know, you got biblical support. Is that what we're left with? Uh, now, it's certainly going to be true that Christians in different contexts are going to think very differently about the Christ-culture relationship. If you're being persecuted in China under the communist regime, dare I say much of the world has a very different context to think about the Christ-culture relationship than uh, somebody who, than, than Calvin in Geneva. And there's no doubt that the context is going to change the way that we think about this. Christians, and I often hear, you know, Rick, it's, it's completely different in New York City than in Greenville, South Carolina. You know, I really do know there's differences between the two. I think New York City is a great city. Of course, I don't live there. But, the, uh, uh, but I, I think it's actually overplayed a little bit. Uh, much of what's going on in New York is going on in Greenville, particularly theologically in the hearts of my people. But it's a different situation between New York City and Greenville, South Carolina. And so is that what it is? So it all depends where you are gives one Christ and culture option, and that's just how you got to do it there. But when you're in a different situation, you do another one. Well, here's the question. Is there not a more biblically holistic approach to this topic? Do we really just have to pick and choose based on preference, setting, strategy? And so here's the challenge. This is really the function of Carson's book. Uh, and I think I, this is my analogy. I always loved in Charles Hodge's systematic theology when he's critiquing other points of view. And he'll very carefully work through all the biblical evidence for the Arminian view. And he will go, as you see, Arminianism fits this biblical data very well. However, there is a considerable amount of biblical data it is not considering. <laughs> and we are reformed folks. I always say to, well, I'm not around a lot of Arminians these days, but I, I, I always would say, uh, you got, they'd say, you have your verse, I, I have my verse. I'm like, give me every verse of the Bible. Isn't that what we believe? Isn't, isn't reformed? If you're reformed, it doesn't mean that you believe in predestination. It means that you have, that what the Bible says is right. I like to define reformed as not what I think uh, should be the case, not what I wish was the case, but that which God's word declares to me the case. And the contours of my Reformed theology needs to be shaped and pulled and ordered by every verse in the Bible properly interpreted. We believe in, in the unity of God's word. So as we desire that in our soteriology, for instance, so I think we should want in our way of thinking about culture. Should we not seek a Christ culture approach that does not pick one emphasis while ignoring others? I think that's a, a, a good question and a, a good aspiration. I think the answer is we really ought to seek an approach because here's what's going to happen. If you're, doing, uh, if you're doing the Christ against culture, are you, miss, are, you, are, you doing, are you getting everything you're supposed to be doing? You're not. If you're doing a synthetic approach, Aquinas, is he incorporating the whole Bible? That's the problem. We're not. Uh, and so this is Carson. We are, he, he wants us to incorporate into our thinking. But here's, here's his strategy. Let me put it this way. So Carson says the way for us to think about this, I think, and I think this is very helpful, so I present it to you today. He says, and it's almost a Christian worldview approach, but it's really a biblical theological approach. He says, let's, let's, let's define the Christian faith in terms of the great biblical theological themes. And let's see what emphases are non-negotiable. Follow me? And so we're not really being robustly Christian if we're not including all of these emphases. And obviously he has a broader thing. I'm doing a one-hour seminar. I'm, I'm narrowing it down a little bit. I think this is very helpful. I want to have a, I want to embrace a, a set of commitments, of beliefs, of worldview uh, you know, conclusions that are going to become non-negotiable for whatever I'm setting in and whatever strategy I'm going to do. Now he starts with creation. 
Uh, it is a distinctively Christian teaching. It is necessary for us to believe that God made everything good. He, God is the creator and Lord over the world and all the peoples in it and all that is happening in it. This is where you get Kuiper's, Christ is the Lord of every square inch of the planet Earth. This is a true statement. God created all mankind in his own image. And so issues like the equal dignity and value and worth of all human beings is a non-negotiable issue for Christians as we think about how we relate. We believe everyone bears the image of God. We are equal. We believe in a cultural mandate. Go there and be fruitful. Exercise dominion. And so we say, well, I, you know, we're out of the world. Well, not according to Genesis 1, you're not. Uh, we're to bear fruit now that that's going to be spiritual fruit, but it's not only spiritual fruit. And so the cultural mandate is a very real part of that set of convictions that are necessary to being Christian, the biblical doctrine of creation. But then there's fall. So mankind is in rebellion to God's rule and mankind is crippled by original sin. Everyone is guilty. Everyone is uh, corrupted so as to not be able, apart from the grace of Christ, the saving grace of Christ, to honor God, believe in him, trust in him, worship him. That's kind of, oh, well, suddenly that, well, the culture is good, but let's be careful about this. Because if you think, oh, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a pretty Christian culture. Well, you are just going to discover that you are mistaken. You are not. Uh, and it's always going to tend to idolatry. So you're going to say, we're going to kind of marry up with this cultural artifact. We're going to marry up with the theater or the, the sports scene or whatnot. Okay, but just if you're a Christian, you know that that is going to have an inexorable tendency to idolatry. Just, just keep that in mind. Uh, and God has wrath on that, by the way. Uh, uh, and because of the fall, the great need, the great need of every single person is to be reconciled with God. That is the great need that if you say, okay, this, how are we going to think about society? Uh, I remember uh, uh, when I was in seminary, uh, one of my classes had us read one of the famous church growth books of the, of the time. And I won't embarrass my alma mater by naming the book, but you may figure it out. And at one point it's got a picture of Saddleback Sam. And what you need to know about Saddleback Sam, and it's a, it's a hip, white, just under middle-aged guy in chinos and, you know, uh, uh, floppy hair. And there's an arrow that says he prefers the casual and informal. Uh, he doesn't like uh, obligations placed upon him. He prefers, cult, you know, modern music. And I often thought about, you know, if Paul were to draw his diagram, what do you need to know about, you know, Tarsus Tom? Yeah, you're going to find it in Romans 3. He is not good. He does not seek after God. You know, you're going to find it in Romans 1. Although he knows God, because God has made himself plain, he suppresses the knowledge of God. That's the Bible's, uh, you know, seeker manual, what we need to know. And, and uh, look, I'm not saying you don't need to know about the sociology of your setting, uh, but you absolutely got to know this about it. There's a theology of your context, and their great needs to be reconciled to God, and it's going to require supernatural means. Uh, Carson says the world is simultaneously resplendent with glory and awash in shame. Isn't that right? Simultaneously resplendent in glory and awash in shame. Every expression of human culture simultaneously discloses that we were made in God's image and are misshaped and corroded by rebellion. So uh, uh, that we have the creation perspective. We have the fall perspective. We have the covenant of grace perspective. And right there, what a, what a thing. The very day of the fall, God promises the Redeemer. And you know, here's, a, here's a good uh, coffee uh, hour trivia question. To whom was the gospel first proclaimed? Satan. That's right. And uh, he promises the child of the woman he will crush his, his head. Uh, Abraham is called to bring blessing to the nations. Through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so if we're going to have a Christian mentality, that's like a big, that's the story that we're living. That's the version of the story that we understand. We also believe that God's law touches all of life for all persons. Under uh, you know, the, the Mosaic covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. 
And uh, God's, God has a moral law that is binding on all, all persons, not just believers. God promised and provided a redeeming sacrifice for sin and giving us a gospel to proclaim. That's who we are. That's the, that, we're going to talk about mission of the church. God established his people as a kingdom. Let me say in the Old Covenant, there is no church state. There's no wall of separation between church and state. In the book of, of Leviticus and Numbers and 1 Samuel. And uh, uh, the, the, the God's people, the covenant people of God, is always a theocracy. Always it is a theocracy. There is no division of church and state. There is division of power within it, but no division. So that's what we understand about the covenant of grace. Um, then we have the new covenant in Christ. So the Messiah then came to actually save sinners, and he himself embodies that salvation. He himself is the way, the truth, and the life. We are his body now. And he inaugurates the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come. He is ascended. He is exalted. God gave him as head over the church, to, uh, head over all things to the church. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Surely I'm with you, even, always to the end of the age. Uh, just pastorally, I like to emphasize, I think one of the pastoral needs of all of our congregations is to think of Christ not only in past tense, but future, in future tense, but of present tense. And uh, we are his disciples in a living, through, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But Christ is, we, we, we are his people. He is our Lord right now. And he has, but he, so he's commissioned a gospel-centered uh, I'm missing a word there. Uh, it's a, the church is gospel-centered, focusing on his atoning achievement. The cross is not something that we can be Christian and put under a bushel. I remember when I went to one of my churches in the past, so it's not my present church, but, and um, I, I wasn't quite sure they were clear on the gospel message and salvation, so I I had done some work back at 10th Prez on uh, the, the miracles and how the miracles show their pictures of sin. All these detailed, fascinating pictures of the reign of sin, but then Christ's redemption in a very holistic way. And I was about half, so I, I said I'd preach that. About halfway through, this guy comes to me and he goes, you're, gonna, you're killing our church. Don't you love that? That's five weeks. It didn't take long. You know, you're, you're killing our church. I said, how am I killing our church? Every week you talk about sin and blood. You mentioned, the, you mentioned the cross every single sermon. I was like, Lord, thank you for this encouragement, you know. Uh, and I was less, I was more intemperate then. And I said to him, sir, I may be killing your church, but I'm raising his. I might handle it a little better now. I don't know, it's kind of good. But uh, it was right. I mean, you know, this approach that says we'll get to the atonement, you know, later. I'm not saying every encounter has to start with the atonement. You know, you know what I'm saying. But our witness our relationship to the culture cannot have the scandal of the cross removed. The Bible compares the church to a house. If that's the case, the PCA Administrative Committee is the plumbing of the church. Its work is mostly hidden from view and you don't appreciate it until it breaks. The AC provides churches, presbyteries, and the assembly with the expertise and action needed to keep their ministries moving forward. They don't set the agenda for the PCA. They just make sure its agenda is accomplished. Their vital work depends on generous churches and individuals like you. Learn more about them at PCAAC.org. Uh, through Christ, God has bestowed the Holy Spirit on the church, and he will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, and Christ's church is now a transnational community. I was raised in a military family where, shall we say, uh, or not just a military family, a cavalry family. Cavalry. If you haven't watched, she wore a yellow ribbon, you're not a real American. What branch are you, chaplain? So you... You, you, you get an easy out on that. It's fine. We love you. The, uh, but uh, let's just say patriotism was a huge deal to my upbringing. And then my conversion to Christ really rocked all that. And I had to kind of rethink the whole thing because now I'm part of a transnational community. And look, I was raised in America. I'm grateful America. I love America. Uh, I'm more interested in the work of church. I was over in England talking to some guys there about Brexit. 
I was in Oxford, Oxford EPC Church, and I was talking to a guy about Brexit, and I find Brexit to be fascinating, by the way. And uh, I said, what's your view of Brexit? He says, well, I'm against the, the, uh, the, the England pulling out of the EU. I said, really? I, I wouldn't want to be part of the EU. Why do you want to be? He goes, oh, because my EU passport makes a, is a huge help in evangelism. Is a huge help. I'm like, wow, one of us is thinking transnationally as a Christian, and one of us is not. <laughs> so on the wrong end of that stick. Um, so uh, uh, this is what it means to be Christian, then heaven and hell. Life ends in eternity, and y'all, that's more significant. Do not store up treasures here where moth destroys and thieves break in and steal, but put your treasures in heaven. So, you know, well, we, we, you know we think equally about heaven and, and earth. Well, let's not. Let's think about heaven. Do not fear him who can destroy only the body, but him who can destroy body and soul in hell. Jesus gives us a heavenward perspective. All persons you and I know are going to stand in the final judgment. We are to know that about Saddleback Sam. There is a hell to be feared by sinners. And the cosmos, I think one of the most thrilling biblical teachings, is that the cosmos... Is there's going to be the palingenesia of the cosmos. The cosmos is going to be born again, Jesus says. This earth, you know, the question is, does, does Peter mean that the earth's going to be destroyed and replaced? I don't believe that at all. The, the, that which God created is going to be renewed in the return of Christ and will be glorious. It gives me a perspective on the earth. Now, that's not comprehensive. Which, which one of those things is, not, is negotiable for a Christian? None of them. So what we need to do is we need to seek to incorporate all of the major turning points, that's Carson's language, of biblical theology, and each approach must be critiqued by the entire Christian worldview. Let's go back to Christ against culture. You go, yeah. Uh, what was it? The, isn't it fascinating, the Benedictine option? Uh, Ron Dreher's book, it, it, you know, it's like, wow. And everybody read it, Reform guys read it and went, well, it's a cool title. I mean, you know, I, I, it's a very insightful book and all that, but... There's some problems with the Benedictine approach. Thank you for keeping the scribal tradition going, you know, God's providence and all. But uh, what about the cultural mandate? I mean, is that just something we, don't, we can just forget the culture? We, you know. Uh, uh, what about um, the preaching of the gospel? What is the, so, so you find yourself in a prison camp. You're a prisoner of World War War II in a Japanese, and these are the great stories, right? They're all over the place. And the prisoner realizes that he's to do good to his fellow man who's the prison guard who's brutalizing him. And he prayerfully witnesses the gospel to that man. Well, that's a guy with a more integrated Christian worldview in his Christ and culture world. So if we're just going to say, I, I can, Rick, I can justify Christ against culture. Well, in the way that an Arminian can, our, you know, can justify his view by uh, handling some verses and avoiding the others. Uh, Christ against culture itself does not fill it. What about Christ? Uh, by the way, I don't have Christ of culture here. We're just removing it. Uh, the Christ above culture. This, this is where... You know, oh yeah, the flaw, the, the, the you know Christopher Nolan. I love Christopher Nolan uh, movie. He's a director. Uh, it's really the gospel. Oh, it was really embarrassing when the Matrix came out, and every youth pastor in the state of Florida where I lived, you know, tried to make you know the Matrix a version of the gospel. I'm just going, stop, stop. The Matrix, great movie, but not the gospel. You know, uh, maybe there's you know there's a, there's a carefully done illustration. You know, the world's not what you think it is. Okay, then stop. Get back to the Bible. Uh, the um, um, uh, that culture, that institution that you're going to superintend, um, it, it may be as corrupting as it is redeeming. Uh, Bob Godfrey wrote an article years ago called "The Myth of Influence," and I've often thought of it that you know that's a two-way street, boys. You know, that, <laughs> there's traffic going both ways on that road. So let's just be thinking about that. Is Christianity truly expressed in any one culture? I mean, no, it's not. So if you're going to say, well, this is Thomas Aquinas. Christendom is going to be European society, superintended by the church, is going to be Christianity. Now, there's some real blessings of that. There were some downside losses out of that, shall we say. Uh, what about uh, Christian and Christ and culture in paradox, dualist? Oh, okay, but doesn't God's law touch all of life? And so today, the, the very popular two kingdoms theology, 
that says, look, uh, when I'm at when I'm at church, I'm a Christian, I operate by Christian rules, and when I'm at the Guild of Historians, then I'm there not as a Christian, I'm there as a historian. Uh, and there's no Christian plumbing, Rick. You know, it's like pipes. And you know, there's nothing that you just do the pipes and you're a plumber, be a plumber. Uh, isn't God's law binding for all people? Isn't it true for all people? Is there a Christian way of being secular that is not under the lordship of, the, of Christ? I, 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 can't, I don't know how that answer is given. Uh, when the image of God is violated, don't I, as a Christian, have an obligation to my fellow human being? Uh, this is Luther. It's a Lutheran approach. And look, you can tell the horror story of any of you, but it's a matter of fact that the Lutheran church, and God bless Lutherans, in Nazi Germany justified their cooperation with the state under this dualism. And that doesn't mean, okay, you've zinged us with our worst example. Uh, uh, don't forget that the Fab Five cheated. Okay, don't, don't forget Chris Weber calling time out. Okay, we've, we've had our problems at Michigan. I'm a Michigan grad. Uh, I'm not trying to just, but it's, it, what about the Southern Presbyterians? Justifying is under two kingdoms, dualism. Uh, they were, they actually had, it's kind of favorite, David Calhoun's book, uh, uh, Our Southern Zion, I think it's a wonderful book. And uh, actually, the Southern Presbyterian Church had a very high view of the Negro. They taught that the African American was, a, was, a, was, their, was their equal, was made in the image of God, uh, that uh, they actually believed that there was no ultimate barrier between, this is the, the conservative Southern, South Carolina Senate at least, that between a, a slave being an elder in the church, that just the context didn't, it wasn't the time for it. And they were working towards that. But, you know, look, we're, we're Christians and we're South Carolinians. And South Carolina does slavery. Uh, it's not looking so good now, is it? And so uh, the, we're going to do what the culture does. Now you said, well, those are gross examples. Yeah, but it's all bad. <laughs> you know, those are just the gross examples. Uh, that dualism, what, 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 what happens when my neighbor, what happens when my homosexual neighbor is getting a death threat? Do I as a Christian have any relationship to that? Yes. Uh, uh, so there's a problem. There's a lot of truth in the dualistic view. Christ, the transformer of culture, the conversionist view. What is culture? Can we stop saying redeem the culture unless we're speaking about propitiation? The word redemption biblically has to do with the payment of the debt of our sin, not getting some Christian ideas into the movie. I'm not against that. But are we really converting the culture of Greenville, South Carolina as the culture? You know, the dualistic approach says, look, and I vibe very sympathize with that. Dwight L. Moody. Look, uh, I'm a, I'm, I got a lifeboat, and it's my job to rescue people drowning in, uh, in a despicable world. I am saving sinners out of the culture. That's my job. I sympathize with that. The conversionist says, no, no, we're going to make the culture increasingly Christian. Are you really? Have you read the book of Revelation lately? Uh, uh, what is redemption? What do you mean? Isn't the world bound to idolatry? Does, isn't John right when he says the whole world is under the power of the evil one? And so how, how's that going to happen? Isn't heaven the aim? What's my point? None of them are adequate. <laughs> we cannot be authentically Christian by any buffet-style choice. We have to check. And I want to say this. If you find yourself leaning one way, these are questions to ask yourself. And I want to acknowledge to a certain extent that your setting is going to have an influence on you. Obviously, if you're in Rome, if in, you know, in the or at the end of the first century, Christ against culture is a real deal. You know, you're, you're not bowing to Caesar. But let's not forget the other things. So I think this helps us to say, you know, where do I need to be challenging myself and my church? We kind of have a historical Christ against culture or a, a dualist or a synthetic or a conversionist. Where, where, do I need to, where do I need to be thinking about? We, we need to think more thoroughly. Uh, this helps us to challenge our thinking. So here's uh, the tape proposal. I'm calling it a balanced table, not a buffet, but a balanced table. Since the world is idolatrous and rebellious, this is kind of my proposals. Uh, so, so I say biblical models. It's not this biblical model. It's a synthetic biblical model. Since the world is idolatrous and rebellious to God, we must not adopt the aims and objectives of the world without serious care. This is a urgent matter. 
It's going on all the time in evangelicalism today. Uh, the world today believes that women's rights are a vital aim. We are very sympathetic in one way, and we're concerned another way, but it is not the aim of the gospel does not vindicate itself to the extent that it causes equal pay of women in the workplace. See what I'm saying? We do not make, uh, uh, sanctification is not decided strictly by the degree of racial diversity in your church. That's being said. Sanctification equals the percentage of racial, well, look, uh, we should be striving and praying for racial diversity. That's not how the Bible defines sanctification. And so we must not allow, the, the culture says, here's the outcomes that we're, we're aiming for. This is the Christ of culture. And so the church must produce, the gospel will validate itself as it produces these outcomes, that the, it might be, I hope I'm communicating clearly, that the church, we must not do that. Why? Because the church, the world is under the power of the evil one. Because it's always got, I'm not, it's good and fallen. It is resplendent with glory and, and abashed in shame. That's always going on. We cannot just say, okay, the world says, you know, we're a good denomination. If, and you take whatever the cultural, whether it's a, whether you're wearing a MAGA hat or is there a hat on the other side? I don't know. Uh, a rainbow scarf or whatever. Uh, if you allow the world to give you your objective, you know, the, the, the aim is sound borders. I think that it's a reasonable thing for a nation state to have sound borders. That is not an objective that the church is given. We must get our objectives from the word. We must say no to the lie. The culture is, you know, what does the Bible say? It's under the deception of the evil one. There are lies, there's idolatries, there's lies working all through it. And, and, and it's resplendent in glory and abashed in shame. We must be willing to go, no, no, no. We're not going to define success the way that, I think that's a huge issue today. Uh, you know, I was really saddened by Rachel Held Evans' death. Kind of a tragic thing. But I was really saddened by her writings because that's really what it was. She'd come to the position that we're going to define Christianity. So there's this critique, uh, you get in Peter Enns. Uh, well, you know, the Bible can't be true because if you believe the Bible, you believe that God endorsed genocide. And you're on camp, college campuses today. The whole thing about, so you, you believe that God committed, you know, ba slamming babies' head against walls. And, you know, they're, they're, the, the, the people of God go into Canaan and they slaughter them. It's mass. I mean, the, if they're going to obey the Bible, everyone's to be killed and their livestock. So it's got animal abuse on top of it. What's the Christian answer? Oh, no, no, our God wouldn't do that. That's not the Christian answer. The Christian answer is Jesus' answer. Well, you should repent lest the same thing happen to you. Now, that's not going to be your actual response, but it's going to be the substance of it. And that was Jesus' response. That was Jesus' response. You know, the tower fell on him. Best you repent lest the same thing happen to you. And the, the conquest of Canaan is a foretaste of the final judgment where, unless we're not going to be Christians anymore, the Son of God is going to come back with a sword strapped to his thigh. And he's going to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. And, uh, but we're not going to say, oh, no, 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 we'll tone that down. A Noah's flood. I heard a guy recently said uh, he had some Chinese uh, high school students, non-Christians, staying with him. And they went to church, and Noah's flood was, was, was preached. And they came back saying, you have the worst religion. Your God's this evil guy. Well, why would you say that? He slaughtered everyone. Well, well there eight of them that weren't slaughtered. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> He's a wrathful God. So we're not going to negotiate the Canaanite occupation. Uh, we're not going to allow the world to say, we're not going to say, look, our Christ-culture, we're going to manage that Christ-culture relationship by letting them tell us how we define Christian outcomes. It's a huge deal today. Since the world was made good and belongs to God, we must not abandon culture. We must not abandon culture. Since men and women bear God's image, we must not despise them. There are, I mean, Christopher Nolan is uh, inception. Um, I'm not uncritically using movies, uh, but there are, there are, so, you know, there's only one story, right? 
That's why, you know, all the fairy tales, it's gospel, you know, uh, it, 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 there is, the, and, the, and those non-Christian people are thinking interesting things, and they have insights, and we want to enjoy that and be willing to learn from them. They're made in the image of God. Yes, they're under the, you know, the power of Satan, but they bear God's image. We must not neglect their good. We must say no to the lie. We must say yes to people. We must say, I, I think I'll say it at the end, of it, but I may run out of time. You know, the culture war has been a disaster for us. I'm not saying we shouldn't have fought it. I think we have no obligation, no, no option but to fight it. But your gay neighbor is not your culture war enemy. She is your neighbor. So you're to befriend her. You're to seek their good. Obviously, there's limitations. We've got to think through these things. Do I go to the wedding or not? Well, tell me the details. You know, how's this working out? But they're my neighbor. And we are to seek their good. We must say yes to people. And, and even to the good that comes out of the image of God. Since Christ came to save sinners, we must proclaim the gospel, I mean the biblical gospel, boldly and lovingly to all. We must be faithful to the gospel. If our Christ culture management doesn't involve the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died as the only... A substitute for the sins of man to be reconciled to a holy, loving Father. What are we doing? What are we doing? I, I, one pet peeve of mine is incarnational theology, incarnational ministry. You know, incarnation is one of those adjectives you got to be careful what noun you associate it with. Like Christ is a good one to assign it to. I, I find that often incarnational ministry means we're going to do good works and never mention Jesus. You and I just just by being there. Jesus brings the gospel. Jesus is the incarnate one. In him, we see God. You know, Romans 1, John 1, 14. We beheld his glory. He was there. You and I just being there are not doing gospel ministry. We must proclaim the biblical message. Now, I'm all for a sports league that, that, you know, that has gospel messages. I, I, I'm for all kinds of creativity. But if we have a Christ culture dynamic that in which we are not declaring to them the gospel truth, we are failing our Lord. We must be faithful to the gospel. You're going, that's going to really cramp our relationship. Often it is. But uh, that's why you have a sovereign God who answers prayer and, does, and glorifies himself. He causes that which is not to be and what is to not be. Since heaven and hell are real, we must prioritize the things of eternity over the temporal. Our, temporal, our own temporal good must be sacrificed for the sinner's eternal gain. You know, honestly, it's a disgrace that, uh, that it, we're trying to get our folks to tithe. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the, the level of mission support from the American churches for these great works of the gospel, we should be ashamed of. I mean, really, we should be, our missions budget should double. And what would we, what, what is the level of, of affluence that we would really sacrifice to go from 15% missions to 35? The Holy Spirit is doing great things in the world. And uh, 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 we, we don't have the zeal to do them, but we see we're to prior. We say, "Yeah, heavens matters." So it's my eter- present good that's to be sacrificed for others' eternal gain. Uh, our present suffering must be embraced for Christ's eternal glory. We must pursue the salvation of sinners. We must do the work of the kingdom of Christ. Now that's not comprehensive, but you see what I'm trying to do, following Carson's lead. If we're going to have a biblical model for Christ and culture, we must say no to the lies. We must understand what culture we're dealing with. We must say yes to the people. We must be faithful to the gospel. We must pursue eternity. Uh, John Piper was at a Luzon conference, the last one, and uh, the, the organizers were kind of social gospel-y. And uh, they, they got him to come. They gave him this topic. It was going to be um, the, this priority of mercy ministries. And they were hoping he'd give a, a, a focus on the churches feeding the poor and whatnot. And Piper gets up there and he goes out. I've been asked to speak on mercy ministries, and I've agreed, but I'd like to make some caveats first. Can we just agree among us that when we, we're compassionate for suffering, but the longer the suffering will endure, the more urgent it is for us to deal with that? And then the more intense forms of suffering ought to be the ones that the church prioritizes. Therefore, I come to proclaim Jesus Christ to you as the only one who will deliver you from the pains of hell. 
not what they had in mind, you know. <laughs> I'm not saying we don't talk about it, but that's, there's a heaven to be gained, there's a hell to be, to be suffered. Um, let's look at a few passages here. I, I'm watching my watch too. Uh, what, this is just a, an entryway into thinking about it biblically. Uh, what an important statement, you know, that when Jesus says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, render to the things of God that are God's. You know, they're trying to trip him up. They've got Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, so they think, you know, anytime you think Jesus, you had, it, it, just stop. But anyway, the, uh, uh, he's either going to inflame, by the way, it's interesting, they have uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are joined together. They hate each other, but they'll join Antichrist, they'll join for Antichrist. So uh, yeah, the, if, if he says, yeah, pay taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees are going to ruin his reputation with the pious. If they says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, the Sadducees are going to turn him in. Oh, they got him. And Jesus says, uh, whose likeness and inscription is this? Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Uh, clearly establishes two kingdoms, the church and the state. Christian, if you, don't, if you say, I have no obligations to the state, I don't have to pay my taxes because they're using it for, you know, abortion. Jesus says, render to Tiberius Caesar, was it Tiberius then? Yeah, I guess it was still Tiberius. Not good. Not good, Bob. Uh, you know, he's not going to do good things with your, with your denarii. Who's in script? It's his coin. You use his coins, you give a tax to him. And so uh, it clearly establishes the church and state. We have obligations as citizens. We got to be good citizens. Christ and culture means paying your taxes. It means engaging in cultural service, military services of war, cultural involvement. You should be involved. You should be voting and participating in those things. Caesar render render that to him. It also reflects a transnational church and a two kingdom thinking. We're the kingdom of Christ. That's the kingdom of Caesar. It's the kingdom of Caesar. But here's the question implied in it: Caesar's image is on the coin. This is very much going on in the text. Where's God's image? We render to, to Caesar what's his, what is Caesar's is what his image is on. When we render to God what is his, where is God's image? On ourselves. This is not setting forth a parallel duality. <laughs> no, it's not. God's authority is higher. We give back to him what has his image on it, our very selves. They are not parallel sovereigns. My, my obligations to the state are circumscribed by a higher obligation to him whose image is on my very self. Okay, what is the mission of the church then? Well, I'm going to say it depends on what you mean by church. The church, uh, this is the church, this is, a, oh, this is the steeple, open the doors, look at the people. I didn't, get, I didn't grow up in an evangelical church, so I don't know all the words to pass it on, and I can't do that right. Uh, if we're going to find, and the, the church is the people, well, what's the mission of the church. Well, as the people, it's, it's dual. We have a primary obligation to serve our neighbor's eternal good. But we, and let me go back up. We have the obligation of Jeremiah 25 and 29.5. Rick Phillips, Christian, has an obligation to seek the welfare of the city, where I have sent you into exile to pray to the Lord on his behalf. For in his welfare, you, should, you will find your welfare. I'm to be involved in the culture of Greenville, South Carolina. You're to be involved in the culture of whatever culturally inferior town you've been forced to live in. <laughs> Unless you're from Charleston. We still acknowledge Charleston's greatness in Greenville. But, uh, the, uh, but wherever you live, seek the welfare of it. You're a citizen of that realm. Be a good citizen. Pray for it. And look, it's Babylon. Babylon goes well. If there's food in Babylon, church's going to eat. I recommend you help farming and food distribution out in Babylon. Now, obviously, even as individual Christians, our primary obligation is the people's eternal good. How beautiful are the feet of him who bears good news. And so even as this whole business of when I'm in culture, I'm not fulfilling Christian obligations. I remember hearing about Cornelius Van Til. His last meeting with the whatever philosophical society was meeting at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, I get the story third hand. The guy who told it to me heard it from the guy who was with Van Til. And the guy, uh, Van Til, closes the meeting and says, this is my last meeting, I'm an old man, I'm having to retire, and it's been a privilege to work with you, and my conscience in Christ requires me, before I depart from you, to summon you to repent of your sins, your intellectual autonomy, 
They, you know, did they even understand what he's talking about? You know, they, yeah, they were philosophical. You know, he actually is very clear. You, you repent of your idolatry to God, your, your selfish autonomy, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood, and you will be saved. Now, the, as it was told to me, the person who said it to the other guy said, I've never been more embarrassed in all my life. Why would we be embarrassed at Cornelius Van Til? He's talking that way. Uh, uh, that's what a Christian does. If you're a Christian plumber, you're praying for opportunities to witness the gospel to your fellow Christian plumbers. Try not to be obnoxious about it. It's their eternal good, but also their temporal good. So we're to be relieving suffering. We're to be seeking just laws. We're to be friending the lonely. We're, we're gonna, we are to be involved in Christian institutions. People say, oh, it's parachurch is bad. Thank God for parachurch organizations because the church is not just the PCA. And we got a poor problem in Greenville. And there we've got Miracle Hills Ministries, which is what? The Christians working together in an institutional way to feed the poor, to deal with the drug addiction. The Crisis Pregnancy Center, it's a parachurch organization. That's the proper organization for it. It's the church as people banding together to give hope and mercy and, and to save the lives of those little babies. And so we care, like the early church did, the Christians as people, I'm not, not just some casual way. We're to be organizing and working it as Christian citizens doing the will of God for the temporal good of our people. But here's the question. Oh, and, and, and it's where I get, well, one of many places I have a real problem with 2K theology. They'll say, no, you're forgetting that the world is evil under the power of the devil. You're not doing any good. Tell that to William Wilberforce. Tell that to Abraham Kuyper. I know they weren't perfect. I know later, early Kuyper's better than later Kuyper. Tell me he didn't have an impact on Dutch society. Why can't we have an impact on our side? I know we're not redeeming the culture. I know that it's not, the world's under the power of the evil one. But, why, but I'm, as a Christian citizen of that realm, and with fellow Christian citizens, I should be involved in the political process. I should be involved in these things. As the church, as Christian people, has a dual mission. And the church as the institution of Christ does not. The church as an institution is an institution of one kingdom and not the other. You go, well, you're a 40C3. Yeah, I know, we've got a tax status thing and all that. But the church is an institution. You go, the church is not an institution. It absolutely is an institution. It has officers. It has ordinances. It has sacraments. It has, uh, it has uh, its whole, it's an institutional thing as well as the people. And it's under the in mission, uh, under the rule of a king, it is that king who gives it its mission. I do not give. Like, I realize our church just did a whole mission vision thing. It was very profitable for us. We did not arrive at a unique mission. We arrived at an assessment of our opportunities and challenges with regard to that mission. We receive, as an institution of the kingdom of Christ, a mission from our Lord, and it's in the Great Commission. I read an article recently saying, oh, the problem with our churches is this Great Commission mentality. Wow. Uh, by the way, the great, you know, the great Commission is not just a passage. It's what Jesus said immediately before ascending to heaven. And then you go to the Luke version, which I love. You know, the, uh, the, the repentance and forgiveness of sin must be proclaimed to all nations. It, it's great. You get to Acts. What does Jesus say? He gives, a, he gives the Great Commission mission at those key turning points right before he ascends, right as they're waiting for Pentecost to come. He tells them what their orientation is. If we're going to be a Christian church, we're going to do the mission that Christ gave us, not one that the culture gave us, as the institution of the church. And that's the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we receive the mission from him. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Um, notice that, you know, the work of the church, i got to wrap this up by now. The work of the church is overseen by the officers of the church, right? That's what the officers, that's why he has these officers. Go to Acts 6. What does Peter say? Why do they form the diaconate? Because so that we may devote ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word of God. That's, that's the ministry that the church is to do for which he gave the officer. Oh, the deacons do justice and mercy within the church primarily. They may do more, but what's said in Acts 6 is justice and mercy within the church. Uh, you go to uh, what gifts did Christ give the church? And what is the aim of those churches? He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, word ministry. 
Word, gospel proclamation. To what end? To equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. What are the methods he's given the church? The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Y'all, it's by fulfilling the mission Christ gave the church institution. Here's, I'll close with this. You go see if the church is that way, it's going to be culturally irrelevant. No, because the Christian people are going to be so culturally relevant. And the way that we have William Wilberforce is by having John Newton's. And I, I, was, I grew up spiritually at 10th Presbyterian Church. Man, we had, we had harvest ministries came out of there, hope, mercy ministry to the AIDS population, crisis pregnancy center. Why did that all happen? The week-to-week expository preaching of the church. An utter commitment to the mission Christ gave. It's when the institution of the church and the officers of the church focus on the spiritual mission given to the church that you have Christians who do that dual role, properly motivated, properly guided, blessed by the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm starting to steal time. Hope that was helpful to you. Father in heaven, would you be exalted? Uh, I can't say everything just right, Lord, but I pray that this has been biblically faithful and uh, been helpful to our brothers here. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Right. Thank you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.